Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the June 28th, 2023 QPSC. Um, let's go to roll call, please. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Esteem. Here. Trustee Sign is not here, but we do have a quorum. We have a quorum. Audience, um, uh, we're doing a little bit of a slight inversion here. We're at jeopardy of losing a trustee quorum later. So we're going to go into a closed session and approve credentialing. Uh, this is the choreography today. That should take less than five minutes. Then we're going to come back and go through all our open session items. And then we'll end with the second half of closed session as we typically do. So we just want to make sure that we get approval of credentialings. Uh, do we have our chiefs of staff? I see. I have Dr. Lee. Got it. But only Dr. Lee at this point. Okay. Um, all right, I'll go ahead and open up okay. the room. Okay, so, so uh, uh, given that, I'll, I'll ask anyone who's not involved in credentialing to go yes. to, to leave the room. We just reviewed the purposes of the QPSC as we do every month. I won't do it again, it's, a, it's in our packet. And uh, we asked if there was any public comment. There is no public comment. Sorry for that little uh, electronic snafu. So we're gonna go right into the open agenda item right now. Uh, we we uh, usually open up the QPSC with discussion of articles. There are two articles here, uh, which were actually both pretty good reads. The first was The Moral Crisis of America's Doctors. This was published in the New York Times in uh, June of, uh, of this year. And the second was Why Are ER Times Getting Longer? Uh, this came out of the uh, San Francisco Chronicle. Um, I'll say um, selection of these articles were sort of born out of discussion amongst many doctors. I know on the on the morning of the publication of the Moral Crisis of America's Doctors, my own, my personal text uh, strings started firing up. Uh, people saying, hey, have you read this? Um, my, my personal opinion is I think I got so much chatter on this because so much of this resonates with what's going on, not only in other organizations, but specifically in our organization. The concept of moral injury, how health systems can inadvertently be contributors to that sense of moral injury RVUs, unionization, there was so much. That was a chalked full um, uh, article. And I selected the second article because we, like many other health systems, are, are having throughput issues. And it's also one of our agenda items today. So I'll, I'll open it up for discussion, if any, by our chief medical officer, who has also played a played a uh, advisory role in, in both of these articles, and our trustees. So any, any this is free space to talk about stuff. Well, I'll start. And, and this is not so much about the articles themselves, but it was resonating with me because of a conversation that I had with one of our physicians earlier today. And um, this physician uh, called me um, a physician leader, just looking for some help. Uh, but, hey, I don't, I'm not quite sure where to go with this. And um, I wanna be sensitive about the specialty and the location and, and whatnot. But, but suffice it to say is that um, this, physician said, I've been working so hard on trying to get something done on behalf of our patients and through the health system. And I just keep hitting a bunch of walls and everyone's working hard and trying to support, but we're still not getting anywhere. And that just felt to me, you know, and this is someone who is dedicated to coming to work every day. And it just felt like that moral injury that, that, you know, that, folks are here, you know, to, to do a good job, to work hard, and yet sometimes, despite the best intentions, 
we can't do it because of either the design of the system or all the barriers or communication or, you know, so, so many. And, and I, I was really struck by that. And then at the same time, and this is now goes to the personal, um, which is that, you know, there's, um, you know, I'm dealing with a medical issue and I'm just trying to get a medication covered. And my doctor's office has refused to send in a prior authorization. The pharmacy refuses to send a prior authorization. And the insurance uh, for me also said, well, this is not our role. You need to talk to your doctor. And so I called all entities probably about three times today while also, you know, juggling yeah. working here. I was like, gosh, there's got to be a better system. Like, there's just got to be a better way of, of doing this, you know, when, um, like, for, for me, where I feel like I know how to navigate health systems insurance, yeah. you know, and hitting barriers, and I have all of the advantages of, in the world to yeah. be, I, you know, like I know, and, and still hitting barriers, and then contrasting my own experience with then, you know, this experience of this dedicated position today, it really resonated with the moral injury article. Yeah. So I was like, this is being felt every day you know, by, by so many people and not just this health system, but many. Thank you, Dr. Farnley. That was, that, yeah, that did help. Trustee Esteem, Trustee Banerjee, any comments on these articles? Yeah, I mean, in the reading of the, the articles, I was like, this could have been written by any one of us. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's the true experience of healthcare providers to experience moral injury, and it's unfortunately all too common. I mean, I think we're all going through it. You're, the story is spot on, and I think you know we're in a crisis. I think they talk about it very clearly. You know, the profitization of healthcare has changed so much, and it changes our quality of work, and it changes the quality of care. And wait times are longer. It's like, oh my god, how do we get beyond this? And I think you know it's a systems issue that is bigger than any one system. Yeah, all of them come in are so complex. It's, uh, sometimes you feel a little bit overwhelmed. How do how are we going to do this? And then we put then we do our work. Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, I think um, this again, like, kind of spoke to me about the uniqueness of the U.S. healthcare system, mm -hmm. where we spend more per capita than all of the OECD countries yeah. put combined. together, combined, combined, and yet, like, we don't get value. And we don't address how disparities and how the structures and systems, despite our efforts. And when he said that, you know, I mean, this whole moral injury, we've heard exactly about like the police force, the enforcers and others that, <coughs> that have it. And it's so nuanced because A, we are looking at, um, I, I did think a little bit, sometimes this seems a little, simplistic in like it's the suit against the courts. Yes, the yes. people want us to work hard and they are evil and we doctors <coughs> are a monolithic group who are noble and wanting to do that and I think we see a lot of moral injury when pain medication is given disproportionately. We see a lot of moral injury when we see you know the implicit biases playing out within our system because we know we want to do our best, we are trying our best and yet we have very differentiated outcomes because we have a very differentiated system. The people who are most educated, most affluent, most overall able to take care of their health have a different system from those who have different needs. And we 
so often, like within our own system, we see how doctors or others or residents of color or others also feel like left out of the process over here. So how we, despite wanting to do our best, sometimes are doing it to each other. And I know that I come from that field myself, especially in maternal child health, especially in obstetrics, how racism is so rampant over there and how like we get the outcomes for our patients because it is reflected inside in how we work with each other as well. So I felt like just hard, trying hard and within a system, we are sometimes trying to change outcomes within the same flawed system instead of actually dismantling and uh, building a system that is more holistic whole person care and for both patients and staff. Thank you, Trustee Bannery. You know, as they say, uh, every system is perfectly designed to achieve its results, right? Yeah. So I think that that that's our opportunity is to is to is to re-examine our intentionality about how, about about you know intelligent design about the system to achieve these outcomes. So uh, I thank everyone for the discussion on this. Any other comments, questions? All right, thank you. So that will close item A, and we'll go into the consent agenda. Trustees, the consent agenda is before you. Uh, B1 minutes, B2, 27 uh, policy and procedures for the system, B3, MedStat policies, and B4, MedStat privilege forms. Uh, before entertaining a motion to approve entirety, anything that needs to be pulled for discussion? Um, no, pulled for discussion. I just wanted to say that the infection control protocol is part of this, right? Like it's embedded in that, was very interesting, like the Highland report of that. Yeah. So, um, Maybe, uh, yeah, just. Uh, is it something you'd like to put on our tracking item to discuss at a later point? Perhaps, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, I know next, uh, uh, next one is quality. So I would have liked to have seen some comparison to okay. see like how Highland is comparing to others, but let's, we'll, we'll, we'll chat among us. You know, okay. you all so, have your plates full already. So sometimes it's a- No, it's a good question of, you know, that, that. that's our job is to, is to bear out these questions. So. Barring that, so I think that's not, it doesn't have anything to affect the vote, but maybe a, a separate dialogue or a related dialogue. Uh, can I uh, entertain a motion to approve the entirety of the consent agenda? I Second. Madam Clerk. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Esteem. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. With that, we'll close item C. Now we go uh, to the medical staff report section. Uh, this is where we hear uh, uh, directly from our med staff leaders. We have uh, Dr. Lana Lee, of course, uh, Dr. Nikki Joshi, Dr. Afzali is, uh, I believe it's the first evening of Eid night, so he's not going to be here this evening. So um, uh, Dr. Joshi, uh, do you mind opening up for us? Yes, thank you everyone. Thanks for having me today. Um, my report is there and I wanna highlight a few things. Um, first under community, Alameda Hospital is going to be participating in the annual City of Alameda 4th of July Parade, which I hear is one of the largest in the world. So we're excited and this is open to anyone um, within the healthcare system to join us. Um, so we're excited for that. Um, let's see, the other thing I want to highlight is under sustainability. We had a really good dialogue in our MEC of, um, from our perioperative services from Dr. Lang about our current state of operating rooms and where we're going to be going. We had good dialogue 
about um, the current state of SPD and some opportunities to see where that will take us. So we look forward to continuing the conversation about that. Um, secondly, we've had um, some ongoing updates and meetings from Mario Harding regarding contingency planning for chillers and surgical equipment. And this is specifically related to when the weather becomes extreme. So in this case, in the upcoming months, September, October, or you know, when the temperatures go out of range, what will we do with our chillers? So that is also ongoing, and we're glad at the MEC to be getting regular updates about that. The last point under sustainability is that we had our most recent joint planning committee meeting. Um, that was two days ago, June 26th, and that also is headed by Dr. Deutsch and Mark Kretzky is doing significant work there. And that was a really great meeting. We heard some thoughts of what the future state could look like for Alameda Hospital. And that is still a very early stage dialogue, but um, I really want to express from the perspective of the MEC that we are glad that we're there. Um, glad to be hearing this dialogue and looking forward to where the conversations continue to go. And we made some good decisions, I think, to meet monthly. And so the July 31st is, I think, our next meeting and that's already on the calendar. Um, that's the extent of my report and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Can I just add some? Yes, Mr. Jackson, sir. Dr. Joshi, I just wanted to share with you that this morning, um, the Hospital Council of Northern California convened a number of the CEOs from different organizations with um, Supervisor Elisa Marquez to just talk about issues of interest, concern, and seismic is one of the issues. And so the supervisor <laughs> asked, what are the implications of you know, the seismic 2030 deadline as it pertains to local facilities. And so it gave me the opportunity to talk about Alameda Hospital and the fact that, you know, our, our hope, our objective is to maintain it as an acute care facility, but the regulations as they stand now make that prohibitive. And so we then talked about the geographic barriers that we believe will exist if there was to be a significant seismic event and why it would be important to have acute beds on the island. And so I believe the supervisor was sensitive. She she heard it. She asked a few questions about it. So I just wanted you to know that that dialogue continues and we're taking every opportunity to make it known to our electeds how important their support would be in keeping Alameda as an acute hospital. Thank you, sir. Certainly. Trustee Esteen. Yeah, I wanted to just ask for some details uh, that were alluded to about the, the hospital, these are future plans. Did I hear that right? Did I mishear that? Well, so in the meeting, which is the joint planning committee meeting, we're, um, it's just exploratory of what Alameda Hospital, what services we could offer, what are the needs of the county. So really early stage and, um, but some really great ideas, especially in terms of our needs in the county, for example, um, as it is to psychiatric care um, or other opportunities that what Alameda Hospital could provide. So. I think that was a really great dialogue because it's also a pretty multidisciplinary dialogue that we're currently having. But I think we're still many months ahead of being able to really um, know which direction we're, we will be going to. Dr. Joshi, my question, this might be more appropriate to our, uh, equally appropriate to our chief operating officer. So the chillers are important. August and September tend to be our highs. So, uh, uh, Dr. Joshi or Mr. Fraxi, can you comment on what happens if we have such an event right now in current state? Uh, do we have, do, do we bring in an 18 wheeler to chill things out or how does that work, sir? So uh, 
you hear a little bit more about this at the finance committee next week, okay. but um, there is an escalation process where we try to fix it first. And most of the time we're successful okay. with that thus far. If not, we bring in a contractor to try to fix it. We haven't had to bring in portables okay. or anything else yet, which would be kind of hard even if we did right now because you need hookups, you need utilities, you need the electrical, um, everything to be able to do that. So, But that's part of the plan. I guess for next week when we talk about it. How many days did we have off due to chiller last year? Wasn't it like four? I don't recall the exact amount. Dr. Joshi, do you recall how many days? I don't remember exactly how many days, but I believe it spanned over two weeks. Not two weeks entirely, but there were yeah. a two-week period where there were a few days within both yeah. of that time. And yeah, for some time, for some reason in my head, I had like the number four or or something days. And I think one of the times coincided also with San Leandro having issues. Um, and this is different from the generator thing. Remember the days of uh, yes, Trustee Sign and I came yes. for the thing. You were there. For, yes, ma'am. What, what was that? Uh, I can't comment on that specifically. Alden Burkhart keep already. Generators are backup power only, okay. and they've gone down across their system, not because of our own utilities, but because of PG&E. Oh, and something will go on where the power grid will go down. That's and right. Our backup generators kick on. Okay. And they're working fine. Okay. I don't want to get too in the weeds, but if we are down in relation to the chillers, what's the process? Like, how quickly do we get back up? What's like? Well, we've been able to get back up relatively quick. Yeah, as of last year. Yeah. Hours. Oh yeah, hours. And it's a lot of times it's in the off hours too, where we can work on them um, as needed. But you're right. The you know the hot part of the season's coming up, and that's where. We don't have as much trouble with um, necessarily the, the chillers as we do the humidification of our ORs. And, and that's going to be part of what I present next week in terms yes, of if we're going to pick stuff to work on right away, it's prioritized in terms of what we do first. And humidification would be the first thing. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Hatsky. Dr. Joshi, thank you for your report. Dr. Lee, good evening. Hi, good evening. Oh, actually, hold on. Yes. Did you have, uh, sorry, Dr. Lee, I, ha I have one question for Dr. Joshi. Of course. How did the survey go for the uh, the readiness, pediatric readiness survey or that, that happened? Was it what? Yeah, the pediatric readiness at Alameda came, I think, April, and it went really well. Uh, we're still waiting for official feedback from the surveyors, but the real-time feedback was really positive. They commented on our teamwork, our um, sort of enthusiasm for doing the simulations and our knowledge base. And they commented a, a lot on how far we've come because one of the surveyors had apparently worked at Alameda Hospital many years previously. So it was really positive. And, and I also want to add in terms of pediatric readiness, uh, San Leander had theirs uh, last week, June 15th. Um, and one of the things that we talked about, and Nilda has been a part of this, which is the three hospitals, Highland, Alameda, San Leandro, while there are three different EDs, the policies and processes are all the same. So we're hopeful for future state that we could actually combine the dialogue about our visit numbers, our protocols, policies, so that that is a much more streamlined and more effective conversation and then separate out the visiting of the separate emergency departments. Yeah, 
thank you, Dr. Joshi. And I remember now it was Sammy Andrew Hospital. I was there, yeah, because that was what it was that Dr. Sali had mentioned. And I know that one also went very well. She will had a wonderful one in April. Thank you for that. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Dr. Lee. Hi, good evening again. Good evening. All right, I'm here with the AHS MEC to QPSC report. Your report is in front of you, but I will just summarize. Um, for community, <laughs> frontline care providers feel the need to offer high quality, equitable care to our community. They also feel the burnout with large patient volumes, long wait times for appointments, crowded ED waiting rooms, hospital stays awaiting safe discharge decisions. Frontline providers want accurate and meaningful data to enable them to develop efficient, high quality clinical teams and workflows. For quality, our privilege forms um, were updated, uh, as well as policies and procedures for application levels and eligibility for temporary privileges. They were updated to improve provider and department credentialing experience while maintaining our rigorous medical staff processes. At QPSC, uh, there was a presentation. We are happy to see the 2024 TNM dashboard includes two additional elements, action planning and responsible party. Um, the medical staff looks forward to supporting and becoming involved in these elements. In staff and patient experience, it's an update to our department chair recruitment efforts. A candidate for emergency medicine chair has been identified and a verbal offer was made. The candidate is still awaiting a contract. A candidate for orthopedic surgery was identified by medical staff search committee and we are waiting more information. The imaging and radiology department is, uh, and search committee are currently interviewing candidates and we've la now launched our new psychiatry chair search committee. For our department reports, the Department of Ambulatory and Preventive Medicine report was presented by Dr. Shreleka Piranam. The department includes 42 physicians and APPs across four sites and a mobile health unit. She talked about how the department provides a very wide range of services. She spoke about ongoing QIP projects, including innovative, uh, an innovative project to increase fit colon cancer screening. The strengths of the department including team, included team-based care, um, and multiple methods of patient outreach. And she also spoke about a shortage of staff and providers in her department. That is the completion of my report and I'm open to any questions. Trustees, any comments or questions for Dr. Lee's report? Thank you, Dr. Lee, and uh, for being a voice for the patients, uh, for, for the providers, for um, the well, for provider wellness and burnout, we hear you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Dr. Lee. Um, and as I noted before, uh, Dr. Abzali uh, is off for this evening, so we'll see him again next month here from the San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee. Thank you, doctors. With that, we'll close item C. We're moving along, trying to be efficient here. Uh, item D, this is, this is uh, kind of our regular work of, of hearing from our quality team and all the heavy lifting that they do. Um, we'll hear from Ms. Ana Torres taking the lead in, and she might disperse as we delve, delve into some data. For our trustees, I'll, I'll say uh, some of the data, uh, there's, the data was more expansive on this presentation. You see breakdown by certain hospitals. As we discussed before, we want, we were, uh, the trustees were interested in seeing sort of roll-up data to the big dashboards. So thank you to the quality uh, team for, for putting that out. So Ms. Torres, it's yours. And then uh, Mr. Espinosa will follow. Okay. 
Okay, so I will start with the June report. Um, under patient safety, first thing I'll talk about is our harm rate. So we've seen the lowest harm rate um, thus far. We are at 1.5 for the month of May, um, which gives us an overall harm rate of 2.9. Our goal is three. Um, and you can see as of November when we had the uh, um, that large um, number of, of events, we've seen a steady drop. Um, I wanted to show this slide because it shows that we are still getting a lot of reports in. So for the month of May, um, there were 535 um, risk events reported. Um, and what that's telling us is that our culture of safety is having a positive effect because people are um, reporting these, these events and that's exactly what we want to see. Um, Darshan will be presenting on the Beta Heart Program um, at the board uh, in July. So she'll be talking about these five pro programs. But what I wanted to do with this slide is just essentially show what our overall approach to harm is. So culture of safety survey, as you know, we, we do the survey every year. And the survey is important because we need to know what's happening so that we can then uh, fix, fix the, um, the issues that, that are reported. Then we have the rapid event response and analysis, which is the next program that we're working on implementing. Um, and this has to do with the RCAs when they occur, um, our response to them and the corrective actions we put into place. So that's all I'll say about that because Darshan is going to do a comprehensive uh, report next month. And what I wanted to show here quickly, since I did speak about the culture of safety, is that we have um, seen positive in, um, we've seen positive movement with our culture of safety. So there are 15 domains and this section is on the culture and you can see to the far right that in every domain here, we did see improvement. Um, and we will see on the next slide as well. These are the engagement um, domains and again, improvement with every, uh, in every section. So Darshan will go over this next month, but it, you know, my point was uh, to show that our culture of safety is showing positive uh, shifts. Good question. Yes. A couple of these are kind of a negative, like intentions to leave workload strain. I'm hoping that those are improving in the direction of like less workload strain, fewer intentions. <laughs> yeah, they, okay. there's movement in the positive direction. Yes. Genius. Uh, green is good. Green is good. But you're right, it's funny. Just making sure. Yeah. 85% of people have intention to leave, right? That would not, that would not yeah. be good. And growing. Yes. Yeah. 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 Now, for the not so good news is our patient relations events. We have seen the patient relation events increase every year. So you see from fiscal year 20 um, to fiscal year today, we are at 868 and we still have a couple months to go. Um, one of the things that we will be looking at, so we're going to be diving into this data and trying to see what the trends are, what's actionable, what we can do with this data. But we, you know, one of the, the common things that we need to do is um, look at these complaints because what we're hoping is that if the complaints are dealt with at the point of where the complaint occurs, then they don't need to become grievances. So we want to see how many, you know, how often that's happening. 
Um, but more information will come on the grievances. We do need to dive into this. We do know that uh, professionalism, access, and quality of care are the top grievances that we're getting. Um, but more information could come on that. Quick question. Yes. Just knowing the extreme variance between the compliments and the other events, and I know that we're collecting thank yous, and sometimes they get shared with us. Those are different? So these are compliments that are going to come to our department. So yes, they would be different. So they're not just thank yous. These are people who called and said, you know, through formally through, formal. a, yeah, through mm -hmm. a process. Just curious if there's any desire to try to drive the positive reports in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. uh, I would agree with you, Trustee, because we've only gotten 29 <laughs> compliments in three fiscals. Yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> but there's, you know, there's obviously other data as Mr. Jackson presents to us all the time. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for people encouraging feedback because, you know, we want our job well done to be noted. And we want people to be proud of themselves right. and say, if you liked what I did today, tell my mm -hmm. boss. Like the guy, like the guy. I mean, you yeah. know, or the cable guy, or whoever. Yeah, yeah. we're all and laborers. As leaders, we like know the, that. you know, the, so. the article said we're all workers, so we should all be. I think that it helps people. Into every time you ask for feedback, you're internalizing your performance. Feedback is a gift. Yeah, and if we then delineate <clears throat> that to our staff and say, ask for the feedback. I think you become a little more conscious of the performance. Yeah, I, I actually think that this approach to getting compliments is probably the most, I don't know, kind of bureaucratic or yeah. way to get them. So I'm not surprised to see a low amount, but I would say pull the comments, the positive comments out of Prescani survey. Right. Then it really goes up. And if you add the ones that James's office gets, Right, um, that come in by way of mail. There's there's multiple ways we get compliments, and I think in totality, if you added them all up, the number would be quite different. Yeah, and and generally, I know we went I'm a customer, and I go when we have a complaint, we tend to speak more about yes. it. when things go well as a yeah. boss. Like not everybody's yeah. coming and saying great job, yeah. like awesome. It's like when it's not yeah. going well is when we speak up the most, but but. I would love to see like if the uh, postcards have some deeper detail about like what worked because sometimes I'm just wanting to know when they say thank you. I'm like, I wish I could ask them what worked so we could then yeah. distill that and yeah. make sure that it's actually driving our improvement r uh, over a generalized thank you because that will give us like real granular data. Yeah, sir, it is tangential but related today i shared at the desktop chat a letter <clears throat> that i received yesterday about a a young man he's a student at cal berkeley and he had a heart attack and he was brought here and um he had a great outcome and his parents wrote a letter acknowledging what happened and the kind of detail you're referring to chair Banerjee. they named people and they named kind of what happened and what they were so gratified by and so you know, I shared this on the chat and I will be sharing it with the board in our next board of parks. It's a fabulous letter. The the corollary, which is interesting, is that in the chat questions, one of our staff said, you know, you share all of these good comments, but why don't you share the bad ones? Why don't you why don't you tell us, you know, when the, when you get letters of complaint? And so it was an interesting moment. And so I 
I took the opportunity and I said, you know, I, my philosophy is that I, I praise in public and I correct or discipline in private. And so I do not believe that I would come to a forum like that to present complaints, but please know that we do address them and we do follow up on them. But it was just an interesting moment because, you know, it was kind of this, uh, I don't know what they were getting at, but it just seemed like an interesting thought that I should open a meeting with staff with, you know, a letter of complaint. Um, you can direct them to QPSC. We can up our attendance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. 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 We have the data, sir. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Five o'clock. Yeah. 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 Right. But but I think to Mr. Frasky's point, I mean, I think uh, you know the, the the data doesn't illuminate everything, but I think uh, I think to Trustee Esteen's point, it I think it helps our culture to know that because you know seeing you know twenty nine over three years is a little bit humbling. Yeah. When you know what comes across the the CEO's desk might be a hundred a month. I, I don't know what the number is, and, and then extracting for Preskini. So I think we maybe have an opportunity to expand this because this has cultural impact on us. Um, to Trustee Banerjee's point too, you know the letter that James read to our staff today and others are strikingly alike. As much as people who use our services love the confidence of our staff, it's mostly about how the staff communicated with yes. them. This one was Always. littered with great comments about, you know, the nursing and the doctors explained everything yeah. to me. Um, and it was more of that interpersonal relationship they developed with the caregivers than it was, my God, that was the best surgeon in the world. Yeah. So um, communication. It is. It's really bad. Which is sort of like humbling and optimistic too, right? This ain't rocket science. You know, being nice to people pays off. Yeah. Okay. okay, sorry so for, we'll take into, for digressing. No, no, that's okay. So we'll add that to the next report. Um, onto regulatory affairs. Actually, ma'am, before you go on, can, can we go back to your slide on the monthly patient harm rate? This one? Yes, ma'am. Ms. Torres, with all due respect, I don't think you gave this the due that it deserves for the work. <laughs> yes. Because I, I want to bring attention to the last three months and that is 2.2, 1.8, and 1.5. And I'm gonna say, to my recollection, and Trustee Banerjee's probably goes, it does go longer than mine here, this looks like the lowest quarter on record. I think so too. This looks like the lowest quarter on record for harm rate. And I think that attention should be given. And yeah. even further that you see here, you see there is no event above an E, right. which is the, yes. to, to just to recall right. for everyone, E is the lowest level where harm actually reached the yeah, patient, patient but didn't have an impact. Yes. There's not even an E in this last quarter. This is really uh, so. Uh, amazing. Yeah, it, it is actually uh, you know the the number doesn't lie. So I mean I think that's sort of amazing and how we this is sort of trying to regulate how we feel and what the data set shows. And, and sir, yeah, just to get, we is that May the last quarter? Yeah, that's yes. May, yes. April, so, and March. I've just sat through the monthly operating reports for June, and my guess is June's going to be lower um, than what we're seeing here. I, I mean, we we've seen we're seeing a reduction in falls um, in some of the infections. So I don't know, Anna. That's just my hunch as I'm listening. I, I haven't totaled them all up in my head, but the teams are really, really working on this. So good. Really, yeah. really. And when Annette presents the TNM, she'll show some of the work that's yeah. occurring in the MLR. So, and as a reminder, so this is the voluntary reporting. So this is what's coming through Midas. Yeah. We also monitor harm on our TNM. Right. And we're also looking at PSI 90s 
Yes, yeah. I may. And we'll look for um, how to incorporate some of that data into this report because we're also doing well with our PSI 90 um, and it's not reported here and that's the non-voluntary harm. Yeah. So that's what we're going out and looking for and what CMS is reporting on us. Um, we have a pretty good rate. So we'll start reporting that into QPSC as well. Yeah. So I, I just want to give attention to because that's sort of striking because we're sort of nerds on this. We look yeah. at this all the time, but our general staff maybe does not and you know we're all human beings we're guided by a memory of the last worst event and we think that's how we do it in our system but some of the data is 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 suggesting strongly suggesting otherwise so so i just wanted to call that out because no, nothing above an e and the the, the best quarter I, in my in my in my uh, remembrance uh so I, I that one sort of jumped out at me big time yeah, it is great performance, and I, I think it has a lot to do um, as well with the culture of safety work that we're doing, because we saw from this next slide that it's not a lack of reporting. We're still seeing as many events reported every month. So people are reporting, we're just having less harm uh, to mark yeah. points. Teamwork. And there are still scary things that happen. Of course, yeah. but it's a good sign that people are reporting the small things, because right. that means that there's less fear Correct. All right. Um, and with regulatory affairs still, uh, more good news. There was no um, site visits, self-reported events or complaints from the Joint Commission from CDPH. You can see uh, the activity there, one site visit, two self-reported events um, and one complaint. And we'll have the detail in closed session if the committee wants it. Um, other activities, so Alameda Hospital had uh, their lab survey, which occurred a few months ago, but Joint Commission had additional questions. So they uh, opened up the action plan uh, for additional information, which was resubmitted and accepted by the Joint Commission. Um, Alameda Hospital also had the intracycle monitoring uh, completed for primary stroke. And what that is every other year, when Joint Commission's not here, they're asking us to um, essentially survey ourselves um, and report any issues, um, and uh, we did well with that. Uh, the corrective action plans for the triennial survey were submitted earlier this month, and that was a heavy lift, um, uh, but everything was submitted, and San Leandro just had their Joint Commission lab survey, which again went very well, and we'll have the detail on that next month. Um, but we had a really good visit, and um, they said Dr. Ng was our best practice. Yeah, that yeah, was, that you was so tell great. That story? Oh, sure, cute. yeah, in, in the exit <laughs> interview, because our, our, our staff and, you know, when the surveyor came, that, that usually a surveyor will say, what do you want to get out of this survey? And, and so they indicated that we want to hear about the best practices. You know, and so in the survey exit, the surveyor said, well, I have to say your best practice is Dr. A. <laughs> you know, I couldn't agree more. And of course, he also um, acknowledged also Faye Chow for also her leadership. Yeah, it's a great survey. Yeah. Not to throw more work on you, but throwing more work on you. I think we brought this up at our joint commission. Uh, we were invited to consider applying for the Bernard Tyson Award. I have, and I know you guys are ultimately busy. Have we considered that or, or, or actually researched that? We did research it. Um, the, the timeline was really short. So Got when it. they mentioned it, I think the time 
the deadline was like three or four weeks later. So Got it. Got so it. We didn't look at it. Very fair. So maybe next I'll now leave it alone. <laughs> okay, and I will hand it over to Annette for the True North metrics. So I'll stop sharing. Ms. Johnson? Sorry, I, so screens, I lost my meeting buttons for a second. I was like, I can't unmute. Sorry. <laughs> This is our True North metrics for uh, data through March. You know, we do see a lot of red here at the system level, but when we really look um, at our more recent data towards the end of the fiscal year, we're starting to see our efforts come to their fruition. Um, we're seeing like improved ED wait times of both Alameda and San Leandro. In fact, San Leandro for the last two months was within 10 minutes of their goal. Um, so we're definitely seeing a shift towards that. We're seeing a real decline in falls and happy across the system. Um, and, you know, where we, where we have opportunity, we're starting, we really have some resources. Like when we look at our hospital acquired infections, we have uh, performance improvement teams for CAUTI, CLAPSI, and SSI that are really starting to gear up and um, implement uh, improvements that are sort of sustainable and um, continue to show improvement. And um, if you take a look at our cascade that we can do. Sorry, the report is in the middle here. Um, you can see things, this is Alameda. Um, you can see that our hand hygiene compliance across all of our units like here in Alameda is definitely trending upwards. We have a lot of green at Stanley at Alameda when we look at our hospital acquired harms, they're definitely trending uh, downward and towards goal. Uh, when you take a look at Highland, again, we have very strong performance in um, hand hygiene. And uh, you can see that some of our HAIs are really trending in the right direction. MRSA came way down from where it was at the start of the fiscal year. Um, we still have some opportunities, right? We know that throughput is an issue um, and some patient experience, but we're definitely trending in the right direction. And when we take a look at San Leandro, again, very strong performance in many, much of our harm rates, we're seeing declines in falls and happies. This is a unit that started out the fiscal year pretty high in hospital acquired professional ulcers and really responded to that data. And now we're really starting to see a shift, a continuous shift downwards towards um, and with less and less events. And again, everyone is really trending upwards when it comes to hand hygiene. Um, and we're starting to see shifts in patient experience that are sort of maintained and sustained, not quite where we wanna go, but definitely moving in the right direction. And I was trying to be brief because I heard we had a short amount of time. Are there any specific questions? Ms. Johnson, will you go back to the, the big dashboard? Yes. So number one, appreciation for all that roll up data as when we have time to geek out on that. Um, so I appreciate that. Uh, so this is through March, so there's still a quarter of data, right, uh, mm -hmm. before we close fiscal. Do, mm -hmm. uh, uh, is it possible we're going to green any of these by close of this fiscal? What's your prediction? No, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, but we'll come close on a few, and I will have an analysis for you next yeah. month. It, it was nice to see the splattering of green down at the roll down to at some of the hospital levels. And, 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 and you know, I know the red is sort of like, it's sort of binary, it's red or it's not red, but 
uh, it's important to emphasize we're pretty damn close on a lot of this. Like so darn close on that. Uh, uh, but horseshoes and hand grenades, right? So um, uh, we, we set a target and uh, I guess we'll keep going for it. So I really appreciate that. Um, trustees, any further comments or questions on the data presented? Just this site specific is so helpful. Yeah, it it's really is. Incredible, thank you. I mean, it's, it's such hard work. work. It's, it's enormous work that they yeah. do that we, we sometimes forget because it's just a great chart that just magically appears. And that was like 50 man hours, person hours to do that. Trustee, seen any comments or questions? Ms. Torres, does that close your section? That closes us, yes. Okay. Thank you, uh, thank you very much. Um, we'll go to item D2. Uh, Mr. Espinoza, how are you this evening? Great. Thank you for having me. If I can share my screen quickly, um, and I'll keep mine brief as well. Uh, so for post-acute, our quality report, um, I think it was two months ago, I shared the 35 different metrics that fall into the quality measures um, for CMS. And so uh, the Alameda sites and the subacute unit continue to be at five stars for the 35 metrics um, that uh, are reflected as well as the Fairmont facility. So um, can teams continue to work really hard on those metrics and continue to focus on those that might slightly be off from state and federal um, percentages uh, just to make sure that we are maintaining this, but also working on areas that we can uh, improve on. Uh, and we go over this um, with Mark Fratzke also and the whole team during the Moors. And so that it's a very detailed uh, look at the different copies that the teams are working on site by site. Um, for the ARU metrics, um, we have uh, four out of six that are green. Um, I think uh, the, the ARU normally is pretty green on all metrics. And so during one of our mores, um, Mark Fratsky challenged our team to have stretch goals, which uh, the team embraced. Um, and so we have our targets, which are based off of uh, regional settings, um, which is the, the target group in the center. And so you'll see for discharge to community, we've surpass the target and then we created a stretch goal target. We didn't hit it this month. Um, and then the same with the unplanned return to the acute, we were about 0.25 off from the target and 1.25 for the stretch goal. Um, but I will say the discharge to SNFs, we uh, surpassed our regional target goal and the stretch goal that we've set for ourselves as well as for falls. And uh, for patient satisfaction. Um, so that's a really important one to me. And as we were talking earlier, we have lots of compliments that we see through our um, Prescani press, uh, the Prescani patient satisfaction surveys from the post acute satisfaction surveys that are performed by a third party. Um, also from our Above and Beyond, which is our program for uh, nominating employees, which residents are actually um, involved in nominating employees based on items that they've done above and beyond. So we have lots of compliments that we are receiving that might not be um, received directly through the other department, but um, very similarly to seeing it across the CEO's desk. We also receive them through PACE. Um, some residents email PACE directly and we get emails from PACE um, with those compliments that we then share with the buildings and the employees. 
Uh, so really great score here at 92.26 on a target of 89, stretch goal at 90, and then top box is 92.87. So uh, a lot of it is around food, which is uh, a challenging one to do as we all have different likes and dislikes around food. <laughs> and then the likelihood of recommending our target is 100%, um, which is very high, um, but we were at 91.67. Uh, is something that we're striving to achieve and uh, topics of 92.55. Wow. I will, oops, sorry, go ahead. And that's pretty stretchy going for 100%. It is, it is. <laughs> uh, I wanted to also include our rehab throughout the system. Um, and just to share some of what we, it's called our billable therapy units. It's the treatments that we are providing to our patients throughout the system. And in every location, but our ARU, which was mostly affected by some uh, administrative day patients and a lower census, we're surpassing our uh, treatments across the, the system. And in some cases, you can see by 141% speech therapy at Alameda Hospital, um, physical therapy at Alameda by 167%. And so um, the rehab teams have really streamlined their processes, have really focused on EPIC throughput, have really reached out to our ortho teams and other physicians, um, including working with um, Dr. Smith and Falik on the pelvic pain clinic, which has also produced more therapy for a group that was um, underseen in our community. Um, and so the biggest um, hurdle that we're working on right now is that we, we don't have the space to add more therapists. Um, we've really have maxed out and we have more programs that are coming like the stroke program at Highland, um, which is going to have more of a need at Highland as well. And um, some other programs that we're working on. And so working closely with Mark Fratsky and others on potentials for space, if we can open up another space for outpatient rehab to really not only reduce um, uh, or see more of these patients, but really help with program development and our waiting list. Because we, several years ago, began with a waiting list that was about 3,000 patients. We brought it down to about 300 it's creeping back up. And so there is an opportunity to further grow our rehab departments, um, but really wanted to share how um, across the system rehab is really being seen and utilized um, by many physicians and clinicians as um, the great program that it is. Absolutely. And that's all I had. So if there were any questions. Thank you, sir. Trustees, any questions of Mr. Espinoza? Yeah, just gratitude to you and your team for just consistently, consistently. Yeah, consistency. And when you hear from the patients, that is the biggest indicator that things are going well. Yeah. With that, we will close out items, uh, item D, the D1 and D2, and we'll go to item E. This is a standing agenda item where we hear, uh, I, I, I work with Dr. Porn, Dr. Tornabeni and she selects uh, an area in the organization which has worked on some type of quality improvement project or, or, or system or process. And I'll give this to Dr. Tornabene to introduce. Okay, yeah. Um, so this draws on the great work under our QUIP program. Um, we have here our chief of ophthalmology, Dr. Hernandez, 
We have our um, Director of Ambulatory Services, Holly Garcia, and our Manager of Value-Based Care, Jamie Martin, here. So I got a chance to hear about this work um, through our um, QIP Steering Committee, and I was really inspired by not only the work and the impact um, of this type of quality improvement, but also it, it, it really drew a line around um, our methodologies of quality improvement too, because they this team really kind of walks the walk around um, how to do quality improvement. And so with that, I'm excited to have all of you here um, from this great team. Thank you so much, Dr. Tornabeni. So I'm gonna go ahead and uh, share my screen here. If we can get this slideshow going. And are you able to see my slides there? Although we're seeing presenter mode. This is uh, not my computer, my apologies. <laughs> Let's Works. see here. Try the three ellipses, Dr. Hernandez, on to the right of where you are. And hit. Mm -hmm. I think it should say hide presenter view. You're right on it. There you go. All right. Okay, that'll work. Oh. So let me see one of these little guys. All right, that's good enough. So uh, thanks so much for uh, chatting. Uh, let with me today. Um, sorry about these uh, technical difficulties. Um, and I'm going to be uh, talking to you about diabetic uh, retinopathy screening. Uh, and I'm also going to be including Holly and Jamie in the discussion. So diabetic retinopathy is actually the leading cause of blindness in working age adults. So it's very important for our patients to get screened. Um, and that's why we ask all of our diabetic patients to get screened at least once a year for uh, diabetic retinopathy. At AHS, we were falling behind, unfortunately, with our diabetic screenings. And that's not a, only a problem for patient care, but also as a QIP metric, we were in the red. So we were at, list, at risk of losing funding there. Um, in January of 2021, um, we were only screening 43.8% of patients. I say only because this is actually a very difficult metric uh, to screen. You know, we have so many diabetic patients, um, and actually the institutions that do the best and are at the 90th percentile are screening around 63.8% of patients. So some root causes that we identified as problems, we had um, a lot of uh, uh, backlog to, for the patients to see optometry, around 2,100 patients were waiting to be seen. Uh, we had uh, challenges in capturing external results for the patients we sent outside the system. We had high no-show rates. And uh, the referral process was confusing. However, if you fast forward 14 months, we went from 43.8% to 54% of diabetic patients being screened. And you might not think that's a big difference, but it's a huge change in a short amount of time. Yeah, that's like, you know, thousands of more patients getting screened because um, our, you know, uh, patient base is so big. And when I talk to my friends from other institutions, they can't believe it. They said, how do you do it? How did you do it so quickly? 
Um, and that's what we want to talk to you and share with you today. So I'm going to um, pass this on to Jamie first. And um, before I do that, I'd like to say that this was all done in-house uh, by AHS um, individuals, and I'm very proud of the high quality work that we've achieved. Thank you, Dr. Hernandez. Um, so where did we begin? Um, looking back in 2021, when we were first looking to problem solve around our low diabetic eye exam rates, one of the first things we quickly did is assembled a work group. Um, this was a multidisciplinary work group. Um, folks from our ambulatory operations, our optometry and ophthalmology, both clinical leadership as well as operational leadership, um, team members from my team, our value-based care team, as well as our health outcomes and outreach team. Um, everybody, I think, came at this from different angles and perspectives and trying to problem solve our processes and how we could drive improvement work, and especially recognizing, um, you know, having a very focused patient-centered lens and, and how we can improve. The group also um, had steep knowledge in diabetic screening, as well as our operational workflows across um, ambulatory. We were accountable and we were also sure we were focused in. Uh, uh, Jamie, are you? Uh, she broke a little bit. Oh. Okay. There we go. You're back. You're back. We're back. But I think you were about done with that slide, right? Okay. Yes. Okay. So we'll kind of walk through the several strategies we implemented to get there. The first um, started with some workflow standardization and looking at our current state with Epic documentation. So we created structured documentation for all of our eye exams to make sure that we could capture all of that in our metric, as well as um, incorporating external data. So when patients went um, to outside providers and got their eye exams, being able to close a loop on those results and capture that in our metric, as well as in our care gap alerts. And speaking of care gap alerts, we also created clinical decision support tools um, like the, the health maintenance care gap alert, where it would prompt when patients are due for diabetic um, eye exams. So when patients came in as part of our standard work, we had clinical staff make sure to educate the patient that they were due and help support kind of offering that counseling and helping to support them getting scheduled for their, their screening. Next slide. So in, in addition to, oh, I was going to do this last one and then I'll hand it to you, Holly. Sounds good. Um, in addition to building out those tools in terms of our documentation, we also wanted to make sure we were maximizing our access and ensuring that we were stretching any available slot that we were filling it in with patients. So we were looking at our optometry templates really closely. Um, we looked at what were the overall number of slots that we had available. Were there any that were going underutilized that we could switch and, and ensure kind of better access? So things like new patient slots so we could help get um, kind of really target at our, our backlog and get patients in sooner. We also looked at our backlog, if there was any duplicates in scrubbing. And we also just started to really target our show rates and ensure that we were reaching the kind of the maximum that we'd expect um, of what we could fit in a clinic session. Okay, I'll hand it off to you, Holly. Awesome. Um, so one of our strategies is ensuring that, you know, our schedules are full, right? Um, and one piece of this is ensuring that patients are reminded of their appointments. And this is where I think we're bridging 
two interventions. One was the work on improving diabetic eye screening, but it also married nicely with our implementation of well health, uh, which is now called Artera, right? That's the automated reminder system that texts patients and makes robocalls to patients to remind them of their appointments. And you'll see that sometime in the fall, we implement F21, we implemented autom uh, automated text and phone reminders and the show rate goes up. So, you know, it sort of validates our hunch that um, making consistent reminder calls actually does improve show rates. Um, and then just as an FYI for patients, uh, when we send these automated reminders, patients have the opportunity to respond back to the text to confirm their appointment. Um, if we don't hear from them, we still outreach to them by a human reminder call um, to make sure that they're aware of their appointment. And we also call patients who have a higher no-show rate. So anything more than 20%, we also make human reminder calls for. So nice bridge between two great, um, relatively new projects. And this and is a neat aspect of um, our uh, uh, strategy. So this is uh, artificial intelligence camera. Um, the patient comes in, uh, puts their head here, um, an operator takes a photo, the artificial intelligence um, then decides whether the patient has retinopathy or not. And the patient doesn't need to be dilated. It's a fast process. They're in and out. And we were one of the first in the region to utilize this FDA approved technology. Uh, we've been piloting this since September of 2022 and have had good results. We've um, screened a little over 400 patients with it. And uh, we are expanding our capacity from 20 appointments a week to 60 a week. One um, interesting thing we've discovered as a work group that we wanna continue addressing is that we're doing really, really well with our Asian and Hispanic patients in terms of screening. We're screening them around 65 and 60% uh, rates, which is tremendous. Um, like 90th percentile. But interestingly, our white and our black patients, we're screening them at a much lower rate. They're 45%. Um, and that's not what we expected because we thought maybe language barriers would um, hinder some of these groups coming in. But that's not what we're seeing. The, the, the Hispanic and the Asian patients um, where English is a second language is um, they're actually doing really well. So that's a very interesting finding that we're uh, working, you know, aware of, and we're hoping to address moving forward. Um, other things that we're hoping to address, uh, we actually hired another full-time opto uh, optometrist and opened up a couple new exam lanes. I was just working on that. And uh, hopefully that backlog of 2000 patients waiting to be seen will be history by the time we convene again. Um, we are uh, exploring self-scheduling via MyChart. So that's super exciting also. We've requested a new of these, uh, another camera uh, for uh, additional uh, screening capability at a different site. And we're gonna use patient surveys to understand uh, and close some of these uh, health disparities. So that being said, I'd also like to thank George Lee, Natalie Curtis. They've been wonderful um, physician co-leaders in this initiative. Janet Clayton, um, the leaders at Hayward, Eastmont, Newark, um, the referral unit, the call center. You guys wouldn't believe how important it is to have them on board. Um, Neha Gupta is no longer with the organization, Jamie, um, Holly, and the value-based care team. So any questions?
Great presentation, gang. I, I always have a million questions, but I'll mm -hmm. sit back. Anything? I mean, just uh, remarkable, uh, amazing. And uh, my my question was that that the just so many questions again, but the. Um, Scheduling for the yeah. uh, eye, eye screening, was that something that would not happen before where you would have to call them afterwards to schedule or it wasn't when, when they left that, that appointment? Was that something new that was uh, Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, it's interesting because the ophthalmology no-show rate in my clinic sits around 11, 12%, uh, relatively low. But when we were looking at optometry, who is doing the bulk of these screenings, we noticed their no-show rate was closer to 30%, and it would really fluctuate quite a lot. Um, then when we digged further, um, we realized that we weren't doing reminder phone calls for patient visits. Um, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. Um, so, you know, we started off as a work group trying to figure out how to improve diabetic retinopathy screening rates. And we uncovered a lot in the process. And as you might imagine, the, the workflows on different clinics are not standardized. Thank you. And then stratification helps, right? Yes, it helps you know who is doing well and who is not. So yeah, that is so, so interesting. The way the data is coming out, yeah. Um, my question, and then Trusty Banerjee probably has more too, because this is fun to talk about. Um, this is probably to Ms. Garcia, Ms. Martin. Uh, sorry, Dr. Hernandez, this may be outside your wheelhouse. How much money was at risk for this line item on QIP? I guess I'm getting to the ROI on this because we, we've now hit, hit the QIP uh, baseline, right? So how much money was at risk for, for diabetic retinopathy screening by itself? That might be a little too granular. I know there's like 400 items or whatever on QIP. No, I, I, I think I, we have the answer to that. It's a great question. It was worth $1.5 million. Okay. And as part of QIP, too, what's important to know is every year it's evolving. It only gets harder and harder. So as right. we meet the target, then the next one gets set even higher. So um, still something we're continuing to work on. But yes, yeah, so at that time, it was worth $1.5 million. So you got the efforts of this team was able to achieve $1.5 million for the org? Yes. How and we did it all in-house without needing any external consultants. Okay. And what was the investment? To, what was the investment to get to 1.5? I imagine it was a ton of epic time, but that's sort of like uh, we've we've already built that. How much did your machine cost? Boy, um, yeah, the AI. Holly, do you know the answer to that? I want to say the one camera um, it was somewhere around 40000 and there's also, we leased the device, so we're okay. paying an ongoing annual fee, because since we were, we only have one camera, get, you know, when bigger systems, when they buy like 10 cameras, it makes it much easier, because you can sort of get um, economies of scale, so we have a, a leasing agreement, I think, I want to say it's between 10 and 15 a year, 1000 a year. Okay. Um, but much, much smaller than the 1.5 million that the metric was worth. I appreciate you teeing that up, by the way, Dr. Bouquet. Thank you. That was of nice of you. <laughs> so, see something up. Yes, ma'am. Uh, when we're talking about diabetic retinopathy, sometimes we're talking about uh, avoiding blindness. Right. So uh, I don't know if you have critical numbers, like how many people's eyesight was at a critical 
point where now they're having interventions or, you know, how many- Do, do you have the downstream data on what the retinopathy uh, positives, mm -hmm. what, what, what was the management for the downstream? That's a good way to ask the question. That's that, I'm going yeah, to- Yeah, so- It's a great question, but I see, yeah. Yeah, so you're, you're asking the question of those patients that got screened and are found to have diabetic retinopathy, what uh, uh, stage of diabetic retinopathy they're found to have? Yeah, and, and or interventions. Okay. Were we able to arrest progression? Yeah, yeah. So, so that's a great, great question and not something that we've looked at actually, but we could. Um, I can tell you just um, from my feel of things, that we, of course, have very severe stage, um, uh, you know, uh, patients that we screen and are, are found to have um, diabetic rates that are uh, retinopathies that are in the more severe phases that need intervention. Um, but I don't have a concrete answer. Okay, it's all good. I mean, we're just building the data set. Yeah, I, and, you know, I love cost and I also love people. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that was going to be my question too. That it's just in terms of the screening that is necessary, and for the patients now who will have this and be able to get the treatment that they so need. So this will this is in the help me understand the location. So this is in the specialty outpatient clinic, and when we have when we start taking more of our primary care, because sometimes we have folks who are coming for the first time for primary care and you find that their H1AC might be that high and they already have all of that. So will they, will this, like, where does the screening happen? Dr. Hernandez, can you give us a little bit of clinical yes. ops? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I'd like to just say one more thing about the last point and it is an excellent point because then many screening programs that have been instituted in the past. The problem is that you can't get, you can screen the patients and find the disease, but you can't get them to the appropriate specialist. And that's where we do really well because we're an integrated health system. So the patients that we find, we're able to get into ophthalmology for treatment. Um, and the bulk of the uh, patients are getting screened via uh, uh, in-person visit with optometry. Like I mentioned, you know, uh, the, the, the camera screening is, is, is really a minor component. Um, and so what happens is they're, they're um, getting referred by their primary care doctor to see optometry. The optometrist finds the disease and sends it uh, via e-consult to ophthalmology. So they are referred? Yes. Thank you. And, and uh, this is the part where we ask you, what do you need? It sounds like uh, you need an additional optometrist to help uh, uh, bend the curve further up. If you could yeah, build your program, what would you need more? <laughs> oh, I wasn't prepared to answer that, Taft. But um, <laughs> ba <laughs> basically, um, we are actually doing what we need to do. Um, with this new hire this, of a full-time optometrist, um, I did the numbers and we should be able to get through that backlog and we're undergoing an expansion in Eastmont where we're building a new dental and ophthalmology clinic that will ultimately um, give us a few more exam lanes. Um, so uh, in due time, uh, the wheels, yeah, the, the wheels are turning and we should um, really continue to, um, I think, get to the 90th percentile is what I'm really expecting. Wow, that, that would be yes. awesome. 
Thank you for your president. Actually, one clinical question is, is this annual? This is an annual? But screening is yeah, screening. They, so that's a good question. The screening, uh, the all the um, American Academy of Ophthalmology, all the guidelines are once a year screening. Some health groups like Kaiser have decided to do um, uh, sort of bend the rules a little bit, do like a one screening every two years. Um, we decided based on our patient population and the high level of uh, disease that we have that we should continue doing yearly screenings. So our, our strategy will be annual. Okay. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Great presentation, gang. Appreciate it. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Dr. Tornabeni. Yeah. Thank you. And th thank you for the invitation. And, and many thank you to Holly for um, all the support she's given me. And same with Jamie. Absolutely. Congrats to, to everyone. And we'll, we'll hear from more from you, your team later. So with that, we'll close out item E. And the last item on the agenda is item F, the state of throughput. Uh, this one's sort of a big one, but I think getting a little primer on what we're, the, what, what's happening in our system, I think is really important. This is, uh, will be led by Dr. Tornabene, our chief medical officer, and Ms. Roe Lofton, our chief nursing officer. So I'll, I'll let you Yeah, I'll I up will, because I, I took a look in the board vantage packet and it looks like some of the slides didn't download. So I'll share it from my yes, um, computer here. So just bear with me. Okay. Wow. It worked. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so um, Rao and I are partnering here to give an update on really the kind of where we are right now, and then the structure that we're going to be putting into place to to address what we need to address. So I wanted to start first with the with the clinical. You know that um, basically what are the impacts of ED overcrowding. So um, went to the data, you know, you go, there's lots published out there. And this is the slide that didn't um, download into board Vantage. Um, and so I went to the data to, to really understand from a clinical perspective. And there, there are many journal articles about the impact of both hospital and ED overcrowding, but this particular to ED overcrowding um, uh, the clinical impact on critically ill patients is that, um, and I won't read all of these, but just um, high level, it increased the ICU length of stay. Um, there is a four times increased risk of poor neurologic recovery in patients who present with a stroke. There's delays in routine care, routine care being things like the, the administration of home medication, um, and then uh, d delays in disease-specific disease protocolized care. So if somebody is boarding in the ED and there's a protocol, then it's typically associated with delays in delivering that care. Uh, there is an increased risk of medication-related adverse events. There is a um, higher risk of... Uh, uh, there's a longer time to critical care, uh, critical therapies in patients who present with infection or sepsis. There are decreased rates of hand hygiene. 
you know, lots of people in a rush, you know, and so some things just start to, to drop. There can be delays and definitive therapies um, for um, myocardial infarction. There is a higher risk of seven-day readmissions, and ED overcrowding does actually delay analgesia in patients who present with long bone fractures. So this is in the data, but this is just, this is a true impact at the patient level of ED overcrowding. So this, this slide I wanted to include, it, it is, it is an, an obvious correlation, but this analysis um, in, in this article, they basically just looked at hospital occupancy and ED boarding time. And indeed, there is a clear correlation between the higher the hospital occupancy, the longer the ED boarding time. And we feel that here, certainly at the Highland campus, and the data supports that as well. So uh, Dr. Bouquet has talked about congestive hospital failure, you know, multiple times here in, in the quality committee of the board. And that also exists in a smaller microcosm at the ED level as well, where you can have congestive ED failure and the components of which are just inputs, you know, the inputs of our patients into our ED the components of throughput through our ED and then, and then the outputs. And we've seen through the course of the pandemic, for example, that inputs can change, you know, as different surges come, then inputs can change. Um, we see sometimes um, in, you know, in the ED operation, things might, uh, the, you know, the efficiencies might change depending on, we see here noted in this article, they cite laboratory and radiology turnaround times. Um, maybe there's an inefficient bedding process, but there's internal factors that affect throughput. And then the output, which is something that uh, of the ED, which is clearly felt um, uh, in all of our EDs right now. And that's the waiting time for patients who are waiting for their inpatient beds. Um, we were on a meeting this morning as an example, and, and Dr. Borneo had looked back at few months of um, the, our, our transfer center puts out uh, reports twice a day. And, and she went day by day and collated how many ED boarders were in the morning and how many were um, in, in the afternoon every day for the last few months. And it's about um, 20 uh, at both times of the, uh, uh, at both times a day for those ED reports. So we know that we have an output problem um, here. And that data that I was referring to was the, um, uh, I believe that was the Highland campus. So uh, uh, on the left here, this also came from an article where I, I was just interested in the whole framework because at the center, of course, in ED, um, uh, in ED overcrowding are our ED patients and their families. And there's elements um, uh, that are impacted by ED overcrowding. Quality measures, of course, the patient outcomes, overall access to care or patient experience, medical education, we certainly feel that here too, financial sustainability, operational outcomes, and then quality measures. So with that, we'll turn from the external data and, and uh, or actually I'm gonna turn it over to Ro Lofton for this one. Thank you. Um, so just continuing with, with what Dr. Tornabene was explaining, um, trends in ED boarding and looking at it from a natural, uh, I'm sorry, a national perspective, 
So between 2006 and 2014, um, critically ill patient visits in the ED increased by about 80%. Um, that also, um, during that time period, about 16% um, of the ED patients were intubated. Uh, the mean length of ED boarding time for these critically ill patients, it ranged anywhere from 1.3 to over eight hours, um, and that's nationally. And then what happened? We had COVID. And so with COVID, we had um, lots, of, um, lots of new issues and ED boarding and throughput issues as well um, as a result of the COVID-19 surges. So we were holding a lot more in our ED. Next slide. Um, looking at AHS and our current state. So um, as you'll see a little further in these slides, uh, we've had an increased length of stay with our patients. Um, and increasing um, uh, system admi um, admissions over a period of time. And our wait times for our ED patients um, have more than doubled in the last two years. Um, our frequent um, surge red alerts at, at Highland, the, these things go off sometimes at eight o'clock in the morning, um, indicating that there's ED overcrowding. So um, that's an issue. And um, there still has been a focus or we're coming out of the pandemic where we were focusing on the responses um, due to COVID and the impact that it had through our, um, on our throughput efforts. Um, and there's currently, our current state is that there's lots of throughput efforts underway, but we need to um, have a more coordinated approach to dealing with throughput. And that's what we're working on now. Next slide. Okay, so I'm going into the data and I'm uh, acknowledging Annette Johnson for um, pulling this <laughs> information. So let me um, orient you to the charts that you see here. So this is uh, acute care hospitals, data for our acute care hospitals. These are the medical hospitals, so not including um, John George. It excludes obstetrics patients, but it has medical surgical patients. And this is rolling 12 month data. So that means if you look on the left side of that first chart, June, 2021, that means that that data point is attributed, it has that month and the entire year before, um, and it then just rolls forward. And you can see that in, a, um, in our rolling 12 month data, what we are seeing is both admissions and discharges um, have been increasing at all of our, uh, um, uh, our three acute care uh, campuses collectively. Um, we see that our average length of stay continues to climb. And then our um, average uh, ED dispo to inpatient bedtime, and you heard that from, from Ro just now as well, that the wait time has more than doubled. And so from June, 2021, again, rolling data, but we see this in the monthly as well. So we just look at individual months. Um, that um, our, our waiting time for our boarding patients is increasing. That's a good question. That as we board patients longer, how does the staff capabilities adjust? Like, you know, this is like med surge patients yeah. in the ED yeah. without med surge ratios, yeah. without med surge expertise. Yeah, I'll, Ro, do you want to take that one for, and I can speak to the physicians. Yeah, no. Um, so yeah, you're exactly right. You 
you see med surge patients holding their med tally, there's, there's generally a mix, um, ICU as well. Um, we do uh, work very hard at trying to maintain the ratios. Um, and as you can imagine, when you have so many patients holding in the ED, not only it, um, is it taking up spots for patients that are still coming through the door, but we do have our ratios that we have to adhere to as well. And sometimes that requires us to um, shrink down a little and not have open assignments. So it's very impactful. Um, and what does that do for our, our staff? Um, you can imagine that ED nurses want to take care of ED patients. Um, treat them and street them is what we used to say when I worked in the ED. Uh, and, you know, giving them that attention that they need once they're admitted and adhering to the um, standards for the level of care sometimes can be a challenge. Um, we do try and adjust at times and send nurses down to the ED to um, absorb those assignments so that the ED nurse can actually go out and take care of those patients that are still coming in. But that's not always possible, but it is a goal. And on the physician side, uh, um, that indeed, I mean, there's sometimes the equivalent of an extra hospital ward, you know, in our ED. And mm -hmm. so that impacts our hospitalist services our general surgery services, our specialty services. I mean, it's all extra work that that is, you know, that everyone is doing essentially on top of their usual. Can I a question? This is a little historical. When we had the, when when this hospital that we're in, the Keats Hollow was built, and we had the old hospital, what was the capacity difference in bed count for yeah, the total? So we, we certainly went down. Mr. Um, CEO, what are we currently, 168? Yeah, uh, The old one was around 220, 230. So we, 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 and not all of them were staffed and some were all, but is around, I, I think we went like a net negative around 40 or 50 beds. Yeah, were double rooms, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, sir. We also had some double rooms. So it was, uh, mm -hmm. at the time, I remember, and Trustee Banerjee was on the on the board as well, you know, the, the working theory was that, uh, that, that medicine was going to become more ambulatory. So that was the justification for the yes, smaller hospital. More ambulatory, but we're sicker. Yeah. yeah. And right. we don't have enough ambulatory to really keep up and we're sicker. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we built up a smaller hospital, unfortunately. Everybody did. Yeah. Do we think that there is, I mean, to your point about the conversation today with the supervisor and the visitors, do we think that there's a desire? More beds, more acute beds, or do we think that we're, the desire is really to figure out how to find efficiency within? Yeah, as this progresses, I'm sure that Dr. Tornabeni and Roll will hit on probably the 11 initiatives or so we're working on to try to do just that, try CSD and find figure it out internally first and then go mm -hmm. I would just offer, I don't know that we've, we're optimizing <clears throat> what we have. So yeah. I think if we were more efficient as a system, then it would, I believe, decrease the pressure for more beds. And the other part is having the staff demand. So we can have more beds, but we are hard pressed to identify staff. So I think it's about really at this point optimizing, you know, the resources we have. So, and I did, I got, I got a phone a friend from Dr. Wills, who's on there, and she says the old building was 234. 234. Thank you, Dr. Wills. That was your lifeline. Yeah, yeah. got my back. And to, and to Mr. Preston's point, a lot of them were doubles, and I think, if I recall correctly, some of the corner pockets were, were quads or something like that. 
Uh, so, right, yeah. and we're in a different era, so it's, it's challenging. Now, some additional data that I didn't put an extra slide in here, but it, you might be asking yourself, are our patients sicker? And interestingly, so I went to Pam Puri, you know, who is, um, leads our CDI team, and our case mix index has not significantly changed over the last few fiscal years, which is a measure of, of kind of morbidity um, in the patient population. So, um, uh, you know, we're seeing a longer length of stay, but our overall case mix index is not significantly higher. All right, so with that, I'm gonna hand it back to Ro. All right, well, we've sort of discussed this a little bit, but this is our situation. We have ED over overcrowding and a lack of inpatient capacity, which is causing an increased risk to our patients, as we know. Um, some of the background is that, yes, there's been some foundational work uh, done on management of capacity as well as surge response, but it really lacked a more system-wide approach and focus. Um, so during the assessment, uh, what was found is that there's multiple opportunities that exist, not only in our process, but policy, our workflows, um, different disciplines. We, we have opportunities to improve our uh, process time, our length of stay, our average time of discharge, as well as um, optimizing our partnerships through all stakeholders. So working together. So our recommended next steps, which we've already started, is to develop a throughput steering committee, which will oversee these multiple subcommittees and work groups um, that are working on, as uh, Mark mentioned, we have at least um, 11 uh, different areas that we're looking at. Um, so we'll, we'll have these work groups that will report. Thank you. <laughs> This shows all of the areas that we'll be working on. So um, on my right here, um, these are all the areas that have work groups or subcommittees. Um, and these are the areas of focus that will report through this steering committee where there'll be um, conversation direction, uh, removal of barriers if possible. And then um, at different time intervals, they will report up to the executive operations team um, so that the, um, EOT will have an idea of what we're doing, um, how they can support us if we've run into any barriers, and really for the monitoring of the efforts that the teams are doing. Um, I'll be co-chairing uh, the throughput steering committee with the uh, new ACMO. Dr. Tornabene is kind of pinch hitting right now until that person arrives. Uh, the members are listed there and um, the governance I just mentioned. Some items that aren't uh, being worked on at this particular moment, but that we're looking at in the future will be surgical cohorting, our um, multidisciplinary rounding teams, looking at ways to reduce um, left without being seen and a few more. Um, really to, uh, one of the things I'm really excited about that we're working on over here is our, where is it? Um, our physician air traffic control pilot. And it may not be quite ready for prime time, but very exciting work where we're um, collaborating together, both nursing and the physicians and looking at ways to um, improve our transfer process throughout the system. Um, we'll be doing a seven day pilot. We have lots of metrics that we'll be measuring um, and be able to come back and give you all the report out on that. Um, another real important Important item uh, to pay attention to is the, man, uh, the case management redesign. Um, this is, uh, I think, key to a lot of our throughput um, efforts is 
um, ensuring that case management is as efficient as possible um, and that the work that they're doing is actually yielding the results that we're intending. So we are looking at that. We've done, um, Dr. Dana Littlepage has done an assessment of the case management department and we are working on um, things that we can do to redesign it to make it more efficient. Um, let's see here, next slide. Can I? Of course. Um, so, um, do we do this because throughput is an issue everywhere, uh, Highland, of course. So, is this Highland specific, or is there kind of you know some cross pollination? And we, I don't see anybody from um, San Leandro or uh, Alameda on that on your group, the the members of that group, the mm -hmm. steering committee, and so. Would that, would it help to, like, I know that there's a transfer center and things, but some, uh, you know, med search uh, uh, EDs across our systems? Or is this like we are doing something for Highland, something for San Leandro, something else for Alameda? No, I would, uh, what I would say is probably in a lot of the, the subcommittees, I think as Ro talked about the physician air traffic is a good one that's being led by Dr. Phil Warren, but has um, Dr. Yusuf, Dr. Isawani highly involved as well. And so we're leveraging some of the, the um, subcommittees, but I think it's a great point to say, hey, on the throughput steering committee itself, are there other voices we need there too? And so that's something that I can talk about with, with Ro, we can get together, like who else should be on this? If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So uh, you will, you will definitely want to have their voices there as well. So you know, impressed. There's a lot of there's a lot here. So that shows there's a lot of work. If you could pick your like biggest bang for your bucks, where where, where would you put your money here, Dr. Loft? Probably around the um, the air traffic controller pilot having that quarterback to be able to. Um, spread patients throughout the system um, and not just having them holding at Highland. Um, the system bed capacity work and well, observation too. You know what, they're all like, I'm, I'm excited about all 11 of them, but if I had to start, I guess it would be those three, um, but they all feed into each other and um, they, they do have some impact at the community hospitals as well. We talked a little bit about how this is highlighted heavy. Um, these were more of the opportunities, the bigger opportunities for us to um, improve overall. Um, but I do want to let you know that they're not forgotten, uh, the community. The community I, I, you know, there's a lot of, uh, the, you know, as a doc here and I sit on the MEC, I hear a lot of talk and I, so I, I, I strive to go for the data on system bed capacity. I know there's a lot of discussion that. Are we tracking like on a daily basis what our actual license bed to staff bed? Mm -hmm. I, I presume we are. Like, yes, we are. How, how, many, how many unstaffed beds did we have today? And I, I know that might be a little grain art, so that's sort of rhetorical. Um, but is this a real issue that, that there is a license bed to unstaffed bed uh, delta, which is significant? Do we know what? Yeah. So. Um, I don't have that number right in front of me, but there is a difference and there's a reason for that difference. Um, we, of, of course, we have budgets and we are budgeting and staffing our units uh, based on average daily census and it's a run rate. 
um, from about the, the previous like 12 months. And so you look at Highland and we are pretty much um, budgeted to capacity, yeah. uh, except for maybe in the ICU, we may go up to about 20 or so, um, although we have the capacity for 24. It might be good. Um, you look at Alameda and there's, what was that? I, 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 you know, uh, run rate, I think uh, it works well in a static oh. environment. But when we see those curves going up like that, that sort of challenges how we kind of think about things. But again, we work with the data set. Exactly. And we, we do look at when we have those spikes, we, if there's a, uh, we look at a three month period of time. And if the um, average daily census continues to climb, then we adjust that and add FTEs where, where needed. We have added FTEs to Alameda as well um, to be able to increase capacity there based on the number of patients that they've had admitted. Um, the same thing for San Leandro. And if you all remember, we've increased um, San Leandro by opening the uh, third floor and having um, 10 beds there, which really helped with their um, ED throughput as well. So it's not um, that it's one and done once the budget is um, completed. If there's capacity and we're seeing the patients come to that facility over a period of time, we are adjusting the FTEs. Mr. Jackson, sir. That was just pregnant thought. <laughs> My head's swelling. <laughs> I would say it's, it's I, I think really important about this this pilot um, is that for the pilot period, where you know, the the group which is really um, being led by so many involved, yeah, there's a lot of people yeah, there, um, is really asking the question: What if we just imagine a world where we just have um, a lot of extra beds? so-called extra, end quote, um, uh, bed staffed across the system to take that hospital ward that is in the ED right now and to put them across the system and have that be fully staffed both by physicians and nurses. And so, and that as a starting point is only going to go on per week. But I think that there's that opportunity like, well, what happens if on day five, it's really going well, you know, and these are the things in the planning of this pilot that we need to account for. Yeah. I think this is a great presentation and thank you for taking this on. I think this is one of our essential strategic issues that we're trying to uh, yeah. address. Yeah. So uh, Ms. Lofton and Dr. Tornbenny, I'll put you on a spot a little bit. If we could make the dashboard for the throughput thing, what items would you put on that dashboard? Oh gosh, there's, oh, there's, there's, there's a, a lot. There's yeah, a lot. <laughs> and, and we're, you know, we can't do a million. So yeah. if you had to pick, you know, like your, you know, five to seven best, what would you put down? Well, I. To me, it, it it depends on what you're looking what you're looking for because there's the daily dashboard, which yeah. is what are you actionable on on a daily uh, on a daily basis. I mean, it's everything from a day of discharge dashboard. Oh, are all of the orders in? Oh my gosh, those orders are. I'll, I'll, refer, I'll rephrase. A roll up to the board. A roll up. What, to what the would board. you want your <laughs> What would you want your your trustees to be able to see? So kind of it has to sort of be in yeah. English. And, it would, I, I would probably do something that was around, um, you know, our, our waiting times yeah. in the ED. I would probably want to look at waiting times in our higher acuity units too, yeah. meaning patients who have, might be in the ICU, but are just waiting for floor. Beds. I would 
want something on a dashboard like that to have some outcomes or quality metrics around quality of care that might be impacted um, um, by, by ED boarding. Certainly the overall length of stay. Yeah. Um, we used to have on a throughput dashboard the ODE, so I'd like to see the observed to expected yeah. length of stay. Um, and um, the number of avoidable days. Sometimes we've had trouble having some you know, accuracy yeah. in that data in the past. If you recall that right. used to be on the TNM, yeah. I would love to have that there. And then maybe even a way to, um, to, to quantitate from a financial perspective, um, have something like that on a, on a throughput dashboard, um, not just a, a avoidable days, but it, are there some denials that we could look at yeah. on there? And then a way to look at um, some, perhaps with all of these, some data disaggregation, are, are any of these disproportionately impacting different patient um, populations of ours? So there's there's a lot. And no, That's just off the top yeah, of my head. Yes, sir. The bottom line is kind of an unimportance. Yeah. They'd have to sit in their ADD for you know, greater than two hours. And is that represented by the NEDOC score? So, so just to recall for everyone, the, uh, uh, the National Emergency Department overcrowding score we we have NEDOCS data, which goes back years, don't we? Yeah, yeah. We? I mean, we do. We yeah. do. I mean, there's a running. Uh, yeah. So that would be sort of an interesting kind of graph. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess the point is, so you did awesome on that. Sorry. No, I think off the cuff, but because I think this would be a nice. I think the QPSC is very interested in this because we've been hearing about it forever prior to this administration, the prior administration. So this is a chronic yeah. issue. But you know, I guess our question is ultimately, how do we know if we're getting better? Yeah, and, and I mean, process improvements are at the first thing for outcome improvements too. So sometimes, and I think what's what's really standing out for me, both with the uh, presentation that Dr. Hernandez, uh, Ms. Garcia, Martin did, and you all did, is that sometimes the people closest to the problem know the solution. So we cannot always have consultants swooping in and doing this because some things they are fantastic at and some things when you don't know the internal situation it is the folks who can do this so both of these were process improvements that people who are there who know this intricately are there day in and day out yeah. are seeing where the pain points are and where the opportunities are and yeah. coming up with that so amazing just so exciting and i'll make a plug again to make sure that sometimes we are we could be transactional in the way that this is the need and that we have, but inclusion is like for so many of our folks who leaders, yeah. just amazing leaders who are in the satellite sites, sometimes they get like their visibility as leaders, their visibility as deep, uh, you know, uh, thinkers and uh, change makers and problem solvers uh, are lost because uh, so if there is any way to include them, because I think it's it's that bi-directional learning that happens across the system too. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then next steps are, um, you know, again, kind of calling on that methodology of quality improvement. Yeah. Data. You know, like yeah. where are we? Where do we want to go? Doing that gap yeah. analysis um, for each of these um, projects, both at a roll-up data as a roll-up perspective, you know, and having perhaps a larger dashboard. And I know there's been iterations of this through the, through the years, but then also roll down with the individual initiatives. Um, 
And then, uh, as I noted here, so using that quality improvement framework, and then getting that chance to celebrate bright spots where they are. And, and so, you know, this was interesting. This was an interesting run chart um, here for, this is San Leandro's um, length of stay. And so we see some month over month decrease there at yeah. San Leandro. And it just begs the question, why? why? Like what's, yeah. what's, what's happening there? I mean, let's, let's understand that and, and see what, you know, see, is there anything that we can learn there that, that's happening? Um, but what we did, you know, the other thing that I want to really celebrate is, you know, calling on Trustee Banerjee, what you're saying about our, our San Leandro and Alameda Hospital, is that the admissions to both of those hospitals just continue to, to, grow. to climb and, and grow. So certainly the, the you know, the, those two hospitals are just a critical part of the RQ care beds across the Absolutely. And the transfer center process. Uh -huh. yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, and then um, lastly, I, I mean, there's, there's so much work to be done here, but I also want to um, highlight and, and really with gratitude, say thank you to, to those. There's so many leaders who are out there and bedside staff who have said, you know, help, we, we need help. We need some attention on this. Um, you know, our, our patients are suffering, they're at risk. We, we feel moral injury, we're hearing that and, and we need to adjust and we're coming out. I, I mean, I, I'm just reflecting a little bit and I, I said this in a meeting the other day that on my first day in 2018 here at Alameda Health System, as the ACMO, my first day, um, I went to the throughput steering committee and was said, oh, hey, you'll be the co-chair of this. And so I, <laughs> I, I'm excited to pass that along to our incoming um, ACMO. But there's been that, that the pandemic having, you know, so many of us lived through it and there was so much energy um, uh, that went into all of the structures and response that we needed to have in the pandemic and it's time to kind of move through that and really focus again on something like throughput. We're seeing our, our data that is showing us that we're going in the wrong direction and we need to bend that curve. So with that, um, I'll take any questions. We, we, we gave it to you a lot to both. Yeah, so yeah that was engaging. I mean, there, there's, a, there's obviously a lot of work uh, to be done here. So yeah. we appreciate you and, and, and all the supporting uh, leaders, uh, physician leaders, and, and, and all who are taking on this task, because it is, it's Herculean, the work yeah. ahead of us. Amazing, thank you. Um, so uh, uh, just contemplate how that dashboard might look for the trustees at some future iteration. Sure, yeah, yeah. Okay, so with that, we'll close out um, item F. Item G is very easy, planning calendar. We. Uh, remember the QPSC continues through the summer and, and so we will continue to have our regular schedule. The rest of the board is dark in August, but we will still be here in August. So, so with that, we'll close out item G and that ends our open session, session agenda items. Uh, we'll go back into a closed session, uh, council. Thank you, Chair Bouquet of the board. The QPSC committee of the board will now go to closed session to consider item H2 on the agenda. Thank you for, for those of you out there. Have a great evening. Uh, we're hoping this will be 15, yeah. 15 minutes or so, uh, and we'll come back and discuss any action items. If there are any, we doubt there will be. Have a great evening.